All right, if you have a Bible, uh, I would invite you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. 1 Corinthians um, chapter number 10. Uh, in our Bible reading time, in case you are unfamiliar with this, on our Wednesday night time together, we take a passage of Scripture from our weekly Bible readings, and we spend a little bit of time together kind of uh, diving into that text and, and discussing it a little bit more um, as a group. But anyway, in, in those readings this year, we've been reading through the New Testament together, and we've uh, read the Gospel of Luke, and we've read uh, most of Acts, although we'll come back and finish up some there. We've read uh, the letter to the Galatians, we've read the letters to first, uh, or of first and second Thessalonians, and uh, now we've read through most of first Corinthians. We will finish uh, first Corinthians soon and then jump into second Corinthians and, of course, spend some time there as well. But this particular letter, first Corinthians and second Corinthians, are pretty, pretty interesting letters in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians deals a lot with the cultural issues that were facing the church in Corinth. A lot of them are unique to their setting and to uh, the, the issues they were facing and the things that they were dealing with. However, what Paul deals with, with their divisions and their arguments and their questions, is actually extremely eye-opening for us today. The, the passage we're going to look at tonight really highlights how they were dealing with what we like to call today as gray areas in life. Um, may not be the most comfortable thing to talk about. As a matter of fact, I've wrestled a little bit as I prepared tonight, um, but I think it is certainly worthy in our culture uh, to discuss uh, the very things in which Paul was writing about to the church in Corinth. And so I want to read, just as we get started tonight, I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to start in verse number 23, and you'll kind of get the gist of what I mean, especially if you've been reading 1 Corinthians with us. You already have some ideas of all the things they were wrestling through. Uh, but as Paul was dealing with some of the cultural issues, he kind of wraps up some of that discussion here at the end of chapter 10. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to start reading in verse 23. Paul writes, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Chapter 11, verse 1, But be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is an interesting passage of Scripture. 
certainly when we think about gray areas, it may make you uncomfortable. It certainly sometimes makes me uncomfortable as I think about gray areas in the life of Christianity. Even though it makes us uncomfortable and not something that we typically enjoy talking about, it doesn't mean they don't exist. There have been many a heated argument among Christians on neutral topics that the Bible doesn't always address specifically, right? Like this is kind of that unspoken rule about Scripture. We believe, certainly as Christians and followers of Jesus and as Baptists, that the Word of God stands unparalleled to anything else. It is our authority on how we live our lives, a hundred percent. But Danny, what about the moments in life that the Bible does not address specifically? What about the things that are not detailed out in Scripture that I may face on a daily basis? How do I wrestle with those? How do I answer those questions? What do I do when it's not addressed specifically in the Bible? Now, I'll give you a couple of examples, and they're going to be a little awkward, but bear with me, okay? One of those is drinking alcohol. And you say, Danny, that is addressed specifically in the Bible. I agree, it is addressed in the sense that the Bible is clear that we should not get drunk. But the Bible never says that we cannot drink alcohol. As a matter of fact, there are actually many verses about the benefit of wine. So you say, Danny, what should we do? Well, once again, that's one of the things that's not addressed specifically as to how much is too much or how much should I have or not have. Tobacco use is one of those things. And in our culture today, one that's becoming more prominent in Christian circles is not just tobacco, but marijuana, right? Like, what do we do, Danny? Is it okay? Is it right? Should I abstain? Should I stay away? Does it make me less Christian, more Christian? Well, the Bible doesn't reference these directly at all. You will not find Jesus saying, do not smoke tobacco or do not plant marijuana in your backyard, although don't, that's illegal, you'll go to jail, okay? So, but it doesn't reference those specifically. I'll give you a couple more that are even more awkward. Cohabitation. The Bible does not specifically address a male and a female living in the same house together. You say, Danny, yes it does, you can't have sex before you're married. No, no, I agree with you with that specifically, right? Premarital sex is wrong. However, there's nothing about living in the same house as the opposite sex. The Bible doesn't address that specifically. I'll give you another one, pornography. You say, Danny, no, that's clearly addressed in Scripture. Well, here's what I will tell you. It is certainly wrong to watch others have sex or to view sexual content. Absolutely. I will agree with you 100%. However, if pornography is considered any nakedness, then is it actually sinful, according to the Bible, to see nakedness? Is it sinful to admire the beauty of another person as long as you're not lusting? Now, I know what you're thinking, because I do too. Can you see someone naked and not lust? Well, I will tell you that's very difficult, but I could tell you some people that if we saw them naked, we would probably not lust. But anyway... I know that's funny, like all jokes aside, the reason why this is debatable in certain circles of Christianity is because David wasn't sinful when he saw Bathsheba naked. 
He was sinful when he lusted and then took her as his own, right? So there's some gray area as to what is right, what is wrong, and how do we live if it's not specifically addressed in the Bible. Now, don't be thinking Danny has weird views on things that we understand as Baptists that are wrong, please. I'm not debating where I stand on any of these issues. I'm just discussing that these are gray areas. The point is not, Danny, what's your opinion? The point is that these gray areas are out there and that gray areas exist. The point of thinking about those particular examples is to make us think about what Christians should do when faced with gray areas. How do we respond? How do we know the right thing when faced with a decision or an issue that isn't directly addressed in the Bible? What should I do? Well, Paul gives the Corinthian church some advice on how to deal with the gray areas of the Christian life. We just read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But before we jump into that particular text, I want us to consider some overall context of the letter of 1 Corinthians. The gray area that the church in Corinth was facing dealt with this topic specifically. Food offered to idols. As a matter of fact, you can go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, and you find the beginning of this discussion. It's, it's discussed from chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10. Now, Leon Morris, he wrote a commentary called The First Epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. He helps us understand why this issue was so important to the believers in the first century church. Here's what he writes about their context. He says, first, it was an accepted social practice to have meals in a temple or in some place associated with an idol. It was all part and parcel of formal etiquette in society. The kind of occasion, public or private, when people were likely to come together socially was the kind of occasion when a sacrifice was appropriate. To have nothing to do with such gatherings was to cut oneself off from the most social activity with one's fellows. Secondly, most of the meat sold in the shops had first been offered in sacrifice. Part of the victim was always offered on an altar to the god, part went to the priests, and usually part to the worshippers. The priests customarily sold what they could not use, and it would be very difficult to know for sure whether meat in a given shop had been part of a sacrifice or not. Notice that there are two separate questions. Taking part in idle feasts and the eating of meat bought in shops but previously used as part of a sacrifice. Now in response to Leon Morris's comments, Lawrence Richards, he puts it in simpler terms in his commentary called the Teacher's Commentary. Here's what he writes about their context. He says, what should the Corinthian Christians do? Should they not go to dinner at friends' homes because the food served there would have been offered previously to pagan gods or goddesses? Actually, he highlights... Paul had taught in 1 Corinthians 5, 9-12, through 12, previously in this letter, that believers were not to cut themselves off from pagan contact, even with idolaters. Instead, they were to live holy lives among them. As for the Christians' own homes, the temple meat markets were the normal places to shop, 
So should a Christian now become a vegetarian? Do you see the problems that are happening in their context? This was the complexity of the issue that they were facing. Now listen to you and me, meat offered to idols seems like a simple issue to deal with. However, in their time, in their context, it was more complex than we understand. They argued over what to do because it was such a huge part of their everyday lives. Now, I would suggest, based on the issues that we already talked about, that we would call gray areas, that we also have these types of complexities. We, too, have these neutral practices, what we would call gray areas. How should we handle these issues moving forward as Christians? Well, I think Paul would tell us to ask a few questions of each situation to determine how we respond. I want to share those questions with you tonight. Danny, is this an easy topic? No. Is it always easy to discern and understand that my preference may be better than yours or yours better than mine? No, it's a difficult topic. This is why wisdom must be applied. But I do think Paul helps us with the questions that he presents to us in the context of the church in Corinth. Here's the first question to ask if this is a decision that I should make. Number one, will this decision hinder my relationship with God? Like, that's just a fair question to ask about anything in life. Will this decision hinder my relationship with God? This is why Paul writes in verse 23, if you look back at it, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now in your Bible, maybe like mine, that phrase, all things are lawful, is in quotation marks. Maybe that's the case. The reason is because it's believed by most that this was a common phrase that Christians used in Corinth to get away with any sin that they wanted to indulge in. They would simply say, because of Jesus, I've been freed from this world, so I can do and live and act however I would like because I know Christ. And so Paul flips the phrase that they continuously use and says, okay, even though it may be lawful, does it build up? Will this decision make me more like Jesus, closer to God, or will it hinder my relationship with Him? Listen, our Christian liberty has certainly separated us from the demands of the law. You say, Danny, does that mean that we should not keep what God told us to keep? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we're no longer bound to that particular standard to find our righteousness. We can't. Instead, Paul reminds the legalistic Christians in Galatia of this truth in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, when he wrote, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's he talking about? He's talking about the rules and regulations of the law. Can I just remind you of something? You did not earn your relationship with Jesus through some action or some goodness of your own. It all came through the grace and mercy of God. So since you didn't follow some law to receive it, why would you need to follow some law to keep it? Paul would go on in Galatians. This is chapter 2, verse 16. He would write this. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You say, Danny, what's he saying? Religion, rituals, regulations, none of those things brought about salvation. Only a relationship with Jesus by grace through faith offers salvation. That's why Paul would later put it like this in Galatians 2.20, my favorite verse, you'll hear it a lot. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't live my life to abide by a certain set of standards. I live my life in relationship with my Savior. These are the debates that believers are having with each other as they wrestle through decisions based on an old religious system versus a relationship with Jesus. However, our freedom in Jesus doesn't mean we can do anything that we want. I heard it phrased like this this week. Liberty in Jesus doesn't give us license to sin. It doesn't. Paul used this same statement back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Here's what he wrote. All things are lawful for me. Does that sound familiar? But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. As a matter of fact, just before Paul wrote this verse, he wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. Listen to it. These stand out more in the New Testament, especially with unbelievers, than probably any verses anywhere. Here's what Paul wrote. He said, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Listen, there is certainly... Clearly, things that are sinful, and we must avoid those things as followers of Jesus as we honor God. However, when it comes to the neutral practices, or what we call gray areas, we have liberty in Jesus to decide what we should do based on our relationship with God, and whether or not that decision will hinder it. This is why Paul uses the phrase, Though it may be lawful, it may not be helpful. Instead, he says, not all things build up. God is building something great in your life. Why would we then make a decision that will destroy what he's building? So whatever that decision may be that you're facing, it's likely not a decision of what's wrong versus what's right. We know what to do in the cases that are black and white. That's not the question. It's likely a decision between what's okay or what's best. And we call those gray. Matter of fact, he mentions this already in another context in chapter 8, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians. He says this, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. 
Paul's referencing a larger discussion that you may have a conviction based on your past or based on what you know about yourself. And in that case, stay away from those things that will hinder your relationship with God. Is it lawful? Well, sure. I can buy that or I can move there or I can take that job or I can eat that drink or I can... Whatever that item is. Eat that, eat that drink was kind of weird, I'm sorry. The question is not necessarily what can I eat or what can I drink. The question should be, will this hinder my relationship with God? And then we make our decision accordingly on the gray areas. Please don't miss that context. Let me show the second question that I think is helpful that Paul reminds us of. Not only will this hinder my relationship with God, but the second question is, will this decision hurt someone else's relationship with God? Not just will it hinder my relationship with God, but will this decision that I'm about to make, will it hurt someone else's relationship with God? He goes on a long discussion here as he continues in 1 Corinthians 10. Look back at verse 24. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor." Now, certainly our walk with God is important in making decisions based on neutral practices or gray areas. Our walk with God is important, but so is our witness for God. This is exactly why Paul reminds the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So he keeps it in this context and he goes on. Here's what he says. Verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. Now once again... Paul's referencing their freedom in Jesus. He quotes Psalm 24 when he says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Matter of fact, I read this from John Phillips this week. Here's what he wrote. He said, Paul could see no point in asking whether or not meat sold on the open market had once been dedicated to an idol. What difference did it make to the meat? Meat was meat. Nobody would suspect one of having leanings toward idolatry simply because some of the meat in the butcher's shop had arrived there by way of a heathen temple. One went to the butcher to buy beef, not pay respect to a graven image. Why raise needless questions and arouse a needless nagging conscience over so trivial a matter? So what if pagan priests have laid claim to the meat that eventually showed up in the butcher's shop? Did that nullify the superior fact of God's ownership? No, indeed. Never mind the pagan priests, the meat came originally from a bountiful Lord that should satisfy the weakest conscience. The meat offered to idols shouldn't matter to followers of Jesus because idols aren't real. They were sacrificed to nothing, because there is nothing except our God. Don't forget, Paul's been dealing with this issue since chapter 8. He's already discussed this with the church at Corinth. Here's what he writes in 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6. through Listen to these words. 
Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are through all things and through whom we exist. Seems like Paul is reaffirming this statement when he says, without raising any question on the ground of conscience, even if we befriend someone who worships a false idol, we know there is one God and nothing they do or say can change that fact. He'll go on in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 8, he will say, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Once again, it seems like Paul is reaffirming this statement when he says, without raising any question on the ground of conscience, eat or don't eat, neither matters in your relationship with God. But this changes if it affects someone else. Now, I'll give you a word of caution here as a follower of Jesus. Be cautious to condemn and judge another follower of Jesus because they make a decision that's different than your preference. If it's not condemned by Jesus, then why should it be condemned by you? However, Paul does give us a reason to let go of our own preferences when it comes to gray areas. He continues, verse 28, 1 Corinthians 10, But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Why am I, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Listen, if your decision to do something or partake of something would cause a fellow brother or sister in Christ to stumble, then you should willingly deny your freedoms for their sake. Paul already mentioned this too back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 9-13, through 13, when he wrote, But take care that this right of yours, your freedom, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating an idol's in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. You say, Danny, what in the world is all this discussion about? Well, here's what I think Paul's narrowing down. We must be willing to ask ourselves, not only will this hinder my relationship with God, but will this hurt someone else's relationship with God? And if that answer is yes, then we should be willing to abstain, no matter how much we love it, from whatever it is, right? It's that phrase that I feel like I've been hearing for the past several months. We give up what we love for what we love most. Now, this doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. It doesn't mean that you always have to live your life based on someone else's standards. What it does mean is that you take the time to help each other grow and understand rather than simply do what you please. 
Matter of fact, Paul makes this same argument in Romans chapter 14. He tells them, don't let your different preferences destroy your relationships with each other. That's not where judgment should come from. But he does say in Romans 14, 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. As a matter of fact, he would go on in Romans 15 to remind us this is the example of Jesus. So you say, Danny, how do I make decisions in the gray areas in this life? Well, you ask yourself, will this hinder my relationship with God? Will this hurt someone else's relationship with God? Then ask yourself this, will this decision honor God? That's your next question. Will this decision honor God? You can include the phrase, or dishonor God. This is why Paul would write, probably most people know this verse. As a matter of fact, our children's ministry was memorizing this verse for tonight. And I only know this because my kids came in tonight and told me they memorized their verse. This is from 1 Corinthians 10.31. Paul writes, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Is this not what we should always be looking to do? Shouldn't we always be seeking out how we can honor God and bring Him glory through our lives? Paul wrote a little bit differently in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he said, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now maybe you're thinking, well, Danny, how do I know if this decision will honor God? Well, listen to this. I read this this week. There is no glory brought to God when a believer exercises his liberty to the detriment of a weaker brother. There is no glory brought to God when a believer uses his own preferences as a weapon with which to bludgeon a stronger brother. So even such mundane things as eating or drinking can, should, and indeed must be governed by the unifying factor of the glory of God. We honor God, we bring Him glory when we're obedient. So ask yourself, does this hinder my relationship with God or does this hurt someone else's? If it doesn't, if the answer is no to both of those, then give Him thanks and honor Him in all that you do. I love how Paul reminded his young pastor friend Timothy of this same very truth. He said, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the Word of God in prayer. See, Danny, how do I honor God in all that I do? Well, if it doesn't hinder your relationship or hurt someone else's, then you willingly receive it with gratitude, thanking the One who gave you from His bountiful blessings. Let me show you this last one. Last question to ask yourself. Danny, okay, what do I do if I'm in the gray areas? Well, ask yourself this. Will this decision help others find God? Will it? Will this decision lead someone else to give their life to Jesus? Paul goes on, verse 32, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. You know what he's saying? Every person on the planet. It's a lot of people that you have to worry about. He says, give no offense, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, don't miss this, but that of many, that they may be 
saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Certainly, leading people to Jesus has to always be at the forefront of our minds. Jesus told us just before he left, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Paul would make no decision in life without first thinking about how it would lead others into a relationship with Jesus. As a matter of fact, he put it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. I've heard one preacher put it like this, and I've heard it several times over the years. He said, I'll do anything short of sin to win someone to Jesus. Maybe you're thinking, Danny, this is... It's hard to determine. Not sure what to do with certain situations in my life. Well, can I let you in on a secret, friends? I agree with you. It's difficult at times. In fact, I wish God would have spelled everything out and that we could just follow it to the letter, to the T, that everything would be black and white. But then I remember, He tried that before and it only showed us how bad we really were. The only way we can live like this, the only way we can honor Him in the gray areas with this type of love and this type of unity is through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. As we yield our lives to Jesus and we yield our lives to His authority, we begin to become more like Him. This is certainly why Paul reminds us to be imitators of Christ. Listen, I find that all this that Paul is talking about was already told to us by Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. Listen to this discussion that you've heard before. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And I thought to myself as I wrestled with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Danny, do you love God? If you do, then you should be asking, will this decision hinder my relationship with Him? And will this decision honor Him? Danny, do you love others the way Jesus wants you to? If that's true, then I should be asking myself this. Will this decision hurt someone else's relationship with God? Or will this decision help others find God? As a matter of fact, I heard one leader around this building say many times before, at the end of the day, will this matter a hundred years from now? If it doesn't, then why waste your time on it? If it will then spend every minute you have on it. Friends, listen, there's a lot of gray areas in life. I will not disagree with that. And there are a lot of heated arguments on what I might think is better and what you may think is better. At the end of the day, 
Those opinions and preferences should never be forced on someone else, especially if it destroys the unity that we have around the things that are most important. So on the gray areas, ask yourself these questions. And are you thinking about your love for God and your love for others? On the things that He's clear about, you stand strong in your faith on those principles. But for the gray area, allow liberty, grow together, and love one another above any preference.